The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony and his guests. Together, we will explore the pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's market, and we will share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 19 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 18th of January, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I have the pleasure in speaking with an individual who has had an amazing journey on his path to becoming a professional aviator. He is a former U.S. military F-111 and F-16 mechanic, a general aviation flight instructor, a Part 121 Czech Airman, a racquetball champion, and currently a Boeing 737 first officer at a U.S. legacy airline. We discussed the pathways that led him through his career progression and share some stories from the flight line. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. While I'm very excited today to be able to bring to you some audio from an interview I conducted with a very dear friend of mine and an individual that has had an amazing journey on his progression to becoming a professional aviator. Without further ado, here is the interview. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, We first met in 2005 my next guest and we were flight instructing together he was on his way out to the flight school and i was on my way in he has a background as an enlisted air force mechanic f-111 and f-16 mechanic got a ride one day in a f-16 in 2001 and decided oh my god this is for me so he went to a flight school in Chandler, Arizona, start working on his ratings, ended up in Florida to finish up his CFI, I, and MEI, and headed back home into Phoenix, where he started working as a flight instructor. Soon after, his journey took him to an airline, which uh, I've in the past referred to as the regional airline. And um, unlike the legacy carrier that we work for together, um, I have never really named that regional airline, and today I think we're going to adopt a new fictitious name for the regional that we both have in common, which is going to be Sandpiper Regional. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is a fictitious airline that we do uh, use to cover up the fact that we don't represent either company in any way. 
So in order to protect us from uh, that kind of thing, we were going to call it Sandpiper Regional. And he flew there on first the Embraer 145, then the Embraer 175, where he soon became a Czech airman. And then he got the call to head on over to the legacy carrier that we both fly for currently at Legacy Airlines. Please help me wel- welcome to the show uh, here on Squawk Ident for the first time, Mr. Rob De Jesus. Wow. Sound like a rock star. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a rock star, <laughs> sir. <laughs> How you doing, Rob? How, how's it been? I'm doing well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I've, I've been looking forward to this, and um, um, I like love your podcast. And I'm uh, looking forward to sharing my experiences with you as well as your listeners. So this this should be fun. I, and I'm very very excited to have you. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit or, or sent messages to each other about uh, you know how we've yep. been doing over the years, and you know we met at a very, I think. Uh, pretty exciting time in any aviator's career, which is kind of on the onset. And I remember I interviewed you prior to getting a job. I was flying or getting my training uh, at a school in North uh, Phoenix over at Deer Valley. And the DE that I was using for my check rides um, suggested that instead of working here at this uh, pilot farm that it was, this uh, read airline pilot farm. Um, he says, why don't you go work for a, a smaller operator that just started kind of building back up after 9-11 and, yeah. you know, probably be a better fit for you with your experience. And why don't you give this guy a call? He'll give it to you straight. He's not going to bullshit you. It's not a sales call. He's a flight instructor thing. there. And I, I remember I called you up and you gave it to me straight, man. You're like, hey, man, this is what you're going to get. Here's the pros. Here are the cons. You know, but that really, I can't tell you how much that shaped my decision to apply for, for Tailwind, which is a, it was, it was a great experience. You know, we've mentioned it before in the, in the podcast. Um, unfortunately they're, they're no longer in business. Um, and hopefully someday Tailwind too. I, I I don't know if that's ever going (laughs) to get off the ground, but, um, you know, that was a great time. And unfortunately we were coworkers for what, a week? Before you got the call, yeah, it was, yeah, because the transition was quick for me. Um, so yeah, it was probably about a week um, between you know the time you um, came on to uh, Tailwind and then I was headed out the door. Yeah, so yeah, it was really quick. Yeah, so unfortunately, we didn't get to share many uh, student stories together. Yeah, but uh, would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we kept up over the years, both at uh, the Sandpiper Regional and uh, and now the Legacy Airlines. And um, wow, what an amazing journey you've had! You know, it, well, it has been, and and I think uh, same thing with your journey. You know, it, it I think they're very similar in many aspects, and um, you know from what you mentioned it a little earlier, the downtime and the industry and, and, um, you know, to where we are at now, you know, it's been a hell of a roller coaster for not only for me, maybe for you, but for a lot of people. And I'm just happy to say that I'm here, you know, I'm still here. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we've survived, uh, the lost generation, right. Or the lost decade is what I've, I've heard people refer to the lost decade. 
Um, but you know, we're now it's an exciting time because you know, I, I think I talked about it in episode 16 or 17, where now is the time if you're thinking about aviation to get into it because wow, it really is picking up this, uh, this pace really in flight instructing and, and getting hired quickly and, and really progressing. I remember when I was hired, I think it was the same when you got there. It wasn't, wasn't it a 14 year upgrade when we first got hired over at San, San I remember when I got hired, um, in 2005, August of 2005, the most junior upgrade, um, at Sandpiper regionals <laughs> was, uh, I believe it was a 12-year upgrade, and it wasn't the Saab or the ATR. And I can't remember which one it was, but uh, 12 years. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it it was, um, you know, honestly, I didn't know about that when when I got hired. I, I didn't know much about Sandpiper <laughs> Regional Airlines uh, when I when, – uh, when I got hired on. So it was just one of those deals where the first company to call me and offer me a job was the uh, company that I'm going to choose. Because at that time, like you said, it was, you know, the, the beginning of the lost decade and, uh, you know, just getting an interview and getting hired on was, was a challenge. And I can't believe they actually called me up and asked me for an interview. So you know, yeah. she wrote from there. Yeah. So as you know, uh, Squawk Ident is a podcast dedicated to the journey of not just myself, but the aviators that I have had the privilege to, you know, have a conversation with over the years. And I I always found that your journey has been very interesting. Starting out as, was it technically an AMP? Were you AMP licensed? Yeah, AMP and avionics. I had all that, those certificates. Yeah. So... So what was it something that you decided to get into once you were enlisted or was this something like, how did you get into this aviation field? What, what sparked this even, even as an AMP? Well, it goes all the way back to, um, when I was a kid, uh, my dad was, a was an enlisted, uh, he was enlisted in the Navy and we were based at, uh, Pearl Harbor. Hawaii, which I know you like to go to Hawaii a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he would, as a kid, he would bring me uh, to the to Hickam Air Force Base, and we'd watch, you know, the F4s take off and KC-135s and all those planes uh, out of the base. And uh, you know, I really fell in love with planes and 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 machines. Really, at that time, um, and and then never really. Uh, you know, got into any serious thought about because I was really young, but you know, always I build models. I, I fly RC airplanes and I still fly them today. But you know, those that's the way that I connected aviation and that's how it kept my interest. And it wasn't until I uh, graduated high school when some really good friends of mine who uh, were actually going into the Air Force as pilots um, they said, Hey, you know, you, you have a really good mechanical background. Did you know you can work on airplanes? as a mechanic in the air force and it's a really good career field and you know something you probably should do (laughs) and uh, i was like wow you know i never really thought about that uh you know where do i you know where do i get that information and you know they led me to a recruiter 
and talked about the job. And that's when I enlisted in the Air Force and became an Air Force mechanic. And uh, that was really the beginning of the actual professional career of, uh, of my of aviation for me. And uh, so, yeah, I went to uh, training and got all my certifications out of the way uh, as an Air, Air Force mechanic and became a crew chief on the F-111, later on the F-16. And uh, throughout that time, um, I, with all my training, uh, I was able to get the civilian equivalent to an AV, uh, uh, aircraft mechanic rating. So I got the AMP and power plant rating and um, uh, the avionics rating. And just in case I left the Air Force, I would have those ratings in hand so I could become a civilian aircraft mechanic. But like you mentioned before, you know, I got a ride in the F-16 and figured out that flying um, was a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And a lot less stressful than uh, as being a mechanic. So that's how I got into flying. Now, I remember you telling me about that ride. Um, that was kind of a not a usual thing, was it? To get a ride in You're back right. of an F-16. Yeah, the... You know, most people don't realize or most people don't know that uh, in the Air Force, the uh, the officers are the uh, individuals that actually fly the airplanes and, and they, they take the aircraft into uh, war zones and stuff like that. And and the enlisted guys are if you're if it's a if it's a cargo plane or a large, large aircraft, uh, they would be like the uh, personnel crew on board support crew. But still, the officers would fly it. But on a fighter airplane, it's only the officers that take that airplane to battle. So me being a crew chief, I'd launch the airplane from my base, and I'd stay at the base, and the airplane would go out and fly its mission, and then it'd return, and then that's when I'd, I'd perform all the maintenance on the airplane. So getting a ride in an F-16 was kind of a you know rare occasion for an enlisted person. And they did do it, and uh, they did give people rides, but it, you, there was certain... You know, you'd either have to be, uh, you know, you'd have probably have to retreat, uh, receive an, a, an award or a medal or, um, you know, recognized by your superiors mm-hmm. as a, you know, superior uh, airman. And uh, for me, probably a long discussion somewhere else, but um, I was a professional racquetball player and I represented the Air Force in inner service championships. And uh, so I had won the championship inner service at that time and that's one of the things that you know i got recommended for so and uh recognized for and uh so they gave me a ride in the f-16 so from racquetball champion to right yep. in the back in the f-16 trainer that's, that's it man that's, <laughs> it <was> crazy. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> so and it was amazing of course here's what i think most of the listeners are going to want to know you got a ride in the back and I know that that pilot probably showed you at least a taste of what the F-16 can do. Did you have the bag oh. and did you use it? <laughs> well, that's, that's funny. Let me tell you, he gave me three tastes, <laughs> three bags. <laughs> it was, and, and, and I later found out that there was a, uh, a bet or a challenge on how quick and how how many bags uh, the 
the pilot could get, you know, could get out of me. <laughs> nice. And, and the funny, and the reason why was a lot of the pilots that uh, were in my squadron were guys I, I played racquetball with for fun and for, for practice. So, uh, you know, I'd whoop up on them on the racquetball court. So, you know, they, that was in their element. I mean, they were on, they're on my court, you know, and my element on the right. court. So now it's in their element. <laughs> payback time. So, <laughs> payback a, time. So yeah, they put amazing. it to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm a member of the 9.2 G club. So, oh my, really? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. 9.2 yeah. G's. 9.2 G's. And you didn't black out? Oh, uh, yeah. I blacked out a couple times trying to get to 9.2 G's. The, uh, the G forces experienced on, on those airplanes are incredible. And, and they teach you the, uh, I forget the name of the, the, the maneuver. I think it's Valsabic maneuver or it's, it's a hick sound you make to you know force all your blood uh keep it in the upper extremities and and tighten your your abs and your legs and stuff like that well there's a it's a technique and it's something you have to practice and um when they when they load up the airplane the onset of the g-forces you really have to time it just right because those g-forces can you know come up you know skyrocket extremely quick sure and if you don't hit it just right uh, you may not get that, you know, uh, get initial... keep the blood up in your, in the, yeah. So yeah, I, you get the tunnel vision really quick and then everything goes black and yeah, yeah. Man. it's not, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I, I've, I've experienced tunnel vision during flight training, nothing in a jet powered, uh, fighter or anything, but yeah, it is not fun. And for those of you that are listening, that are going through flight training or thinking about it, part of the training that every, at least every flight instructor has to go through is they have to experience spin training and they have to then be able to teach it once they have candidates that are up to the point where it's not just a demonstration as it would be with a private pilot license, but now with the instrument rating or a flight instructor rating, I believe you have to actually demonstrate and teach. So, um, right. I, I remember, uh, being in a 152, an acrobatic 152 over the Northwest side of Phoenix near Luke air force base there in the training center or training area. And I can remember, you know, I did fine. I don't get sea legs or seasick at all. I don't get motion sickness or car sickness. I'm, I'm a roller coaster kind of guy. And I can remember uh-huh. during that training, there was the I forget what they call it. The death spiral is the, is the, uh, not so common term, but yeah, I can remember it. I, I could see that tunnel vision happening where it's just kind of closing in on you. This darkness, blurriness yeah. coming in. And, yeah. you know, I, I never blacked out because obviously how many G's can that thing pull, you know, maybe two, <laughs> two and a half, three, <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, I can only imagine nine G's. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And it's an, it's a testament to, to all the military pilots out there and the rigors yeah, of their training that really. they have to go through really gives you a sense of appreciation as I'm sure you can attest uh, to. So you, you got this ride, this wonderful experience that if it wasn't for racquetball, you may not have been able to achieve who knows what your journey could have presented to you and, and, and what path you may have chosen. But here you are, you get this amazing experience and it changes your life. And how, how did you go from, hey, I just got to ride in an F-16 to I'm going to be a, an airline pilot or a pilot? It, 
Well, it's unexplainable for me, really. Um, but just the feeling I had being up there and uh, just being, you know, bird's eye view of the world, uh, being able to go from one point to another point in, you know, almost no time. I mean, it, the, you just really watch the earth rotate below you and forget everything that life was like down, you know, down on, on earth. It was just the greatest experience in the world. And, uh, you know, to be able to think that you can do this as a job and get paid for it was pretty enticing to me. <laughs> yeah. I bet. So that was, uh, at that moment, uh, the right place, the right time. And, uh, that's what made me decide to, uh, become a pilot. Now, was this, uh, experience towards the tail end of your, of your military experience or so? It was well, yeah, the it was actually the, uh, the time frame. I, I was actually in a kind of a non-standard enlistment phase. Uh, normally it's, it's long story, but normally enlist for about four years in the Air Force. Well, because I made the transition to the F-16, I was forced to extend my enlistment to six years. And September of, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the actual date, but September, um, to, sorry, 2001 was the actual sixth year of my enlistment. So I was looking at either re-enlisting or totally separating from the military and you know, pursuing whatever I wanted to do outside of the military. And so when this ride came, came up and, you know, I chose to be, to pursue flight training as, as a career, um, that's what I did. So I separated from, uh, active duty and I actually went into the, to the guard mm -hmm. because I actually needed more money for flight training. So sure. the guard yeah. had, a, had a, a GI bill. I had an active duty GI bill and the, the air national guard had a, uh, a guard GI Bill. So I put those two together to help fund supplement some of the training costs. So Okay. And you did your training, uh you mentioned earlier the the beginning of it over at Chandler Airport in Arizona. How how did that experience right. happen? Did you just walk in and say, here's my money or, you know, what do you remember <laughs> about that? Pretty much. Well, you know, I actually knew a uh, a flight instructor there from uh all things racquetball. <laughs> and um so i called him up and and that's where he was uh teaching at so he uh he invited me over and uh we we did the uh you know introductory flight and uh as soon as we got down from that flight i got my bought my logbook uh got my cessna pilot course and uh i started training and from then on out it was almost a daily you know, a daily thing for me because I wanted to do it. I was so passionate about doing it, uh, learning and flying that I wanted to be up in the air as often as I could. And so I almost have a lesson every day. So I come home, hit the books, you know. Yeah, if that's the way you can do flight. it, I think total immersion. I mean, right now we're, we're hearing all about uh, a total immersion language where people like they'll go to Spain for a month and they'll stay with a host family. And by the time they come back, they may not be fluent, but they have this ability to speak Spanish better than, you know, you could two years worth of um, training in, a, in a, an environment. <laughs> right. So when you're looking at something like flight instructing, 
if you have the ability and the finances or with the scholarship or or with the GI bill or whatever you can do, if you can do a total immersion and do like five days a week or or I remember, mm-hmm. well, I went to a, what at the time was called a Pan Am Flight Academy over at Deer Valley, right. which was one of the busiest, uh, busiest general aviation airports in the country at the time. Um, yep. And at the same time, that flight school was one of the largest. So yeah. it really was a farm. I mean, you, you had to do two sorties or two hops a day. If you were in ground school, you had to do your four hours of ground school. And then in the afternoon, you'd be scheduled to do a uh, flight instruction. Um, if you were not in ground right. school, then you were doing two flight instructions a day. And sometimes they were back to back. Sometimes they were separate with two different instructors. It just, they really catered to what it would be like um, at a regional airline. Right. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. had to dress, uh, you had to wear the uniform, you had stripes, you, no stripes yeah. meant you were a, a private one stripe yeah. meant you were instrument rated and two stripes meant you were yeah. commercial it was, the environment. Yeah. yeah. So the environment was there. And, um, I think that complete immersion seven days a week is, it's not about getting it done quickly because, you know, the fast pace of it all isn't there to get it done quickly. It's there to adjust you to being, um, taking in knowledge from a fire hose. It's a common exactly. term that we use. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that you were able to get into it and just dive into it really, I think, helps with the quality of instruction that you're receiving because you're not forgetting totally... things. Yeah. Some people yeah. that do it like once a month, uh, twice a month, you know, that's great. You know, if you're on a budget, definitely. If you're, if you're there all every day, you know, your frequency is high twice a day, seven days a week, you know, you're hearing it, you're seeing it, you're, even though you don't think you're, 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 you know, uh, memorizing anything, you're, you're just hearing it so often and you're seeing it so often that it starts to stick after a while. And, yeah. uh, you know, you don't have any external distractions, uh, while you're there. So you're really just, you know, you just start absorbing, uh, everything that you're around. Yeah. And I think, uh, I I listen to quite a few podcasts, obviously, um, and that's uh, very recent in the last few months. Uh, trying to, you know, diversify my knowledge and my experiences with this podcasting medium that has grown so exponentially here in the past few years. And one of them that I listen to is, is a wonderful show that I highly recommend. It's called The Art mm-hmm. of Manliness, and The Art of Manliness is a gentleman who. That's all he does is an interview. And the interviews could last anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Just depends on who he's interviewing, mostly authors and things like that. Well, he had one, mm-hmm. one individual on there. And if I, if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But he had one individual on there. He was going to college and didn't like the pace of things. So he started uh, doing online courses at the same time that he was doing courses and he uh and physically and he realized that the online courses he would go through them twice as fast and he would watch the videos at 1.5 or two times the speed so they're kind of like speed reading so he's like getting immersed and at first i thought you know this is really it's not going to stick cuz you're 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 going such at such a 
uh, a pace that how can you how can you go beyond rote memorization to all these things? But right. in listening to this individual who had written a book about uh, the quality of of total immersion, the quality of you know really picking up the pace and diving into something. Um, and it started to make sense. And one of the aspects that he talked about was, you know, we read a book and then we like write a note card or we study, we learn how to study, right? Uh, we, we usually learn how to really start studying in junior high, high school. And we, we learn right. about taking notes and reviewing your notes and, you know, um, outlines and note cards and, and whatnot. And he said, that's so backwards. Because when you, when you don't know the answer, if you're reading the answer and you go, oh yeah, I know that because I just read it and you know, I know it. But it's not until you take that note card away and try to right. grab the answer. <laughs> yeah. Even if you get it wrong a few times, your comprehension increases so much more when you're under the pressure of not having that fallback. So when you are in this total immersion in flight training, and you're going at a pace that is so fast that you don't even have the time to go back. Oh, I think it's in chapter four. Let me go look for it. No, no, no. What's the answer? You know, and it really does help with the quality of what you're trying to grasp. And it's interesting that you mentioned that. I just thought of that. I thought I'd mention out there. So the podcast that, uh, that I recommend is called The Art of Manliness. Uh, really great show. But let's move forward. Uh, so you did the flight school, and you didn't quite finish it because I, you mentioned earlier that you started flight school in September of 2001. This is beginning of September 2001, right? So, right. And then yeah. as we, everyone in the world knows, what happened 11 days later. So did. how did that affect you personally in your flight training during that beginning of that lost decade? Well, it affected me in the way that, um, as far as flight training, there was a big delay. Uh, you know, the, F the FAA had, uh, had grounded all the airplanes, uh, closed down air traffic control system, as we know. And uh, I forget how long that lasted. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was longer than two weeks. Um, but uh, we couldn't, we couldn't flight train at all. Uh, the only planes that uh, were allowed to fly were the military airplanes. And then soon after that, I think they started letting the airliners fly and all that stuff. Mm. So flight training, from what I knew, you know, up to that point, ceased to exist. Yeah. Uh, so we were just waiting on the FAA and obviously the uh, the military and the and the government to figure out how they're gonna, you know, op open up the skies again. And uh, so it it slowed down my training, you know. Sure quite a bit because i was like like we, we talked about i was pretty much every day at this flight school yeah um going out there so that stopped and um but you know what continued for me and i think i kind of alluded to that earlier was i was in the guard so they actually activated my guard unit um i was actually uh based at uh, the guard unit in tucson international which if you've flown in there you've seen the f-16s there the flying uh, tacos baby <laughs> What's that? The flying tacos. That's right. <laughs> so they, uh, the F-16 unit there was uh, tasked with uh, uh, basically uh, 
flying over the cities in the in the, in the area and maintaining uh, you know support of the uh, the airspace over the cities while the no fly zone. And I remember sitting in my backyard one day in Arizona, actually on my day off in Phoenix. And, uh, actually, I lived out in, in Gilbert at that time, and this is during the you know the, sh- the ATC shutdown and everything. And I already spent a week down at the guard unit, so they gave me a couple days off. And I'm in my backyard sipping my coffee, just reading the newspaper, and just you know really noting how eerily quiet the air was because you didn't have anything flying, no airlines, no nothing, yeah. and. Um, in the background, I heard a very faint sound of a single-engine airplane. I mean, just stood out like a sore thumb because there was nothing supposed to be flying. And you hear this little plane just, you know, like coming in from the distance, like coming in, you know, from yeah. wherever. It's coming in, and it got louder and louder. I mean, not really loud, but, you know, just getting close. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you hear the F-16s come roaring in from wherever. They're probably at 18,000 feet. They just come swooping in full afterburner, and they intercept this guy. They had three, two or three jets just doing, you know, break-offs and maneuvers around this airplane. And, and at this point, the plane got close enough where I could, you know, kind of get up on the chair and see over the houses and see what's going on. And these planes were intercepting the Cessna, who... Probably was, you know, some farmer out in the middle of Arizona coming in to get some supplies and groceries and gas for a little airplane and didn't check notes and had no clue what was going on in the world. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, anyway, that was, was lucky that he happened didn't that... uh, get shot down. You know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. So they must obviously didn't think he was a threat, but um, man, that was quite exciting. You know, the car, dogs are barking and the car alarms are going off because of the noise, and you know it's really loud. Yeah, <laughs> man. If I was that guy, I think I'd probably soiled myself seeing all that military aircraft around me. But man, what a great story! And so uh, a- after this period that you had, where you were in the guard there in Tucson. How long before you got back into training full-time? Um, it was close to, uh, and I don't recall exactly, but it was about a month after um, September 11th happened. So um, October, sometime in October, we were able to get back in the air. That's not long. And, and start not at all. Yeah. So it was like, it was like a month, um, month of delay. Uh, so yeah, we were we were able to get back in the air and and resume. At that time, obviously, it was my instrument rating because I had my just gotten my private, so mm. started my instrument rating again. And uh, yeah, so went back to it. Hit hit the uh, hit the flight school. You know, try to pick up right where I left off, mm-hmm. going every day and trying to build a time and and get all that training in. Yeah. So you ended up completing your instrument and your commercial, single and multi. Is that and then multi engineering? Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. And then got my instrument commercial. Yep. And then um, actually got my uh, instrument commercial. Then I got my CFI uh, certificate after that. Then I went back and got my commercial and then commercial CFI, MEI, MEII kind of thing. So. Okay. And was that always in the Phoenix area or did you go? Well, I did else? spend a little time at a flight school in uh, Florida, in the Sanford area. At the time, it was called the Delta Connection Academy. Mm-hmm. Formerly, before that, it was known as Comair. 
Um, and at that time, they had a kind of like a fast track program to the airlines, actually to Com Air. Um, if anybody, uh, one of those regional airlines that no longer exists. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's a whole probably a whole story by itself. But um, yeah, I thought that was a good good gig because it was very similar. The program was very similar to what I was looking for. You know, the fast track, fast pace, total immersion in the uh, training environment. And um, I thought it. Yeah, at the time it was a great idea. However, um, I decided to to come back to Arizona um, and finish out my training in Arizona due to the financial aspect. It was pretty expensive to sure. uh, to uh, you know attend that that school that program down there. So, um, and also at the time the uh, because of the the uh, the state of the airline industry and and everything with you know the September 11th happening. There weren't a lot of students, um, really, that were wanting to go into the airline industry, and that's what that Comair Academy was uh, catering to. So when I became a flight instructor, you really didn't have very many students to begin with. So that was uh, kind of a scary moment because that, you know, that's when you really want to start building time, and and you actually start getting paid to fly too as yeah. a flight instructor. So. You didn't. You we, there were no students or not enough students to go around. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when I decided to go back to Arizona and uh, talk to uh, the Tailwind folks, and they were happy to have me come back and become yeah. a flight instructor for them. And and even then, this was what year was this when you went back to Tailwind here and and start flying as an instructor there? Yeah, it's hard to remember, but I think it was about two thousand. Uh, two or 2003 time frame. Yeah. So you had a finally got all ratings. Right. And you had kind of a slow progression. I remember you telling me that, you know, as an instructor, you spent more time cleaning up the flight school and sweeping and, you know, making (laughs) sure the airplanes were stocked and everything. than you were up in the air with the student because it just was that time. Um, and you guys got to play some pranks on, uh, on either the control tower or the the owners of the company, and is there anything that really <laughs> stood out that you you look back and go, man, that was funny? <laughs> well, look, we talked about it earlier. Probably the only thing that I really did. I I, I have a hard time with with uh, you know when I'm in an airplane and and not being professional. So uh, <laughs> that's okay. We don't have to talk I try about that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, yeah, we just uh, we talking with the controllers. Uh, one day we we uh, were, were coming back into the airport. It's a controlled airport, um, Class D airspace and uh, Class Delta. And so obviously you have to check in with the uh, controllers and and get permission to come into the airspace. And so they said, "All right, report, you know, right downwind for runway two uh, two right." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "All right." Uh, we're over Sunny's now, and we're uh, ready to enter the pattern. And they were like, "Oh, Sunny's, hmm, the strip mm, joint, the strip okay. club." <laughs> <laughs> you know, picking out landmarks that a controller <laughs> would recognize is very important. So, <laughs> right on, good job. <laughs> so that was our uh, our shared checkpoint. It wasn't official, but it wasn't on any chart, uh, VFR chart, or any uh, any aviation chart. But yeah. um, it's on Google Maps or Tom Tom, <laughs> Tom, Tom. and uh, so we all knew where it was, and that worked for them, and it worked for us, and uh, we just 
kind of got a good chuckle because we reported over Sunnies every time and yeah. knew exactly what kind of establishment that was. <laughs> right. And that the main controller, that was a contracted tower, if I remember correctly. And the main controller there what? that worked the day shift, uh, former Marine who, you know, on the radio would always say a little, mm-hmm. little something. Uh, and if he knew you were a uh, former military yourself, uh, he'd, he'd razz like the Navy guys and the Air Force guys or the Army guys and always have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. It was so long ago, though. I can't remember, uh, you know, half the things uh, we talked about, but it was a good time. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of learning going on. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful to have had that experience you know, out there is, is, uh, I said, I'm, a, I'm actually a, a subscriber or, or like their uh, Facebook page. So anytime they say something or oh, yeah. uh, take a picture of the airfield on Facebook, you know, it, it's yeah. nice to see that. Cause we shared a lot of, you know, a lot of moments there. So yeah, it's pretty fun. I can remember that in the tower, um, that they encouraged, at least for Tailwind, we had a very good rapport with the owners of the company and with the the tower controllers there. And they would say, yeah. hey, when you have a student who is going through their private pilot, after a few lessons, uh, give us a call. And, you know, right. you, you have their, well, I think they had to have their driver's license or something with them. And then just have them yeah. give a tour, you know, as long as you yeah. escort them. And I remember every student pilot I ever had uh, after a few lessons, I'd say, okay, come in about a 45 minutes early tomorrow because we're going to do a tour of the tower. And, and you know, if nice. time was yeah. permitting, you know, they'd let us go up into the tower and we'd sit up there for a good 20 minutes and get their perspective. Yeah, thing. yeah it was a wonderful experience. I don't know if they do those kind of things anymore. I, you know, from what I understand, that is still available. Yeah, I, I think it's still available um, as long as you have a, a student pilot certificate or, a, you know, a pilot certificate of, of any kind. Because uh, I did visit the, uh, uh, we call it the approach control facility in Westbury, uh, oh. Long Island, or, you know, New York. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all you have to do is have your, uh, your pilot certificate there. I, it, it also helped that I had a buddy who worked there. Sure. So, um, but he said that, you know, any, any pilot can, is welcome to the facility. They, they'd still have to, you know, do a background check and all that fun stuff. But right. um, actually, I'm not sure if it's a background check, but they still have to get your name and your pilot certificate and all that yeah. stuff. So, Verify your info. Uh, yeah. But that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I bet. He was actually a student of mine at, at, uh, at Tailwind. Oh. He became an air traffic controller. Nice. So that was a, a kind of a neat full circle transition for him and uh, for me. So every anytime, and actually he's a controller now in Phoenix. So anytime we... Uh, I go to Phoenix. I, I kind of send him a text message and a heads up, yeah. see if I can get some preferential, preferential, uh, you know, vectors into the uh, airport from him. But <laughs> usually, he must be very senior or something because he doesn't work that often. So yeah. I was going to ask you, how's that working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> Only once have I ever had a, a a really good vector to the airport where I didn't have to stay on the arrival. We just kind of went straight to the numbers and nice. <laughs> and landed, but. Uh, hey, it was. It's good. Anytime he's on the radio, though, it's kind of nice to hear a familiar voice and, you know, just uh, get a little personal on the radio with the highs and hellos and stuff like that. So, sure. and it's it it's a small industry. I mean, after any period of time, you just as long as you're, you know, maintaining a good rapport with people that you come across. You know, I used to 
I used to mention this, especially to new hires, whenever I was conducting IOE and we had our pre-sequence um, interview over the phone, I'd always call them a day before and say, hey, you know, do you have any questions? How did training go? And, you know, then right. we met on the on the aircraft and we would fly along for the week. I'd always mention a couple things that were not part of you know, official IOE. And I always give them the kind of a couple speeches, nothing, right. nothing to lecture, but just to say, Hey man, this is a small community. You think that you look around and there's how many thousands of pilots out there, but after time, you never know that flight attendant that was giving you a hard time might just be your captain in 10 years at another place. So you so correct. Yeah. It's, it's such a small world and, um, and it goes, it, you know, it only not only applies to aviation, but it, it applies to anything in in life. You know, you try not to burn any bridges because yeah. you never know when that particular person that uh, that you come across, uh, whether positive or negatively, is going to be, you know, directly, uh, you know, something important to use further down the line sure. or maybe not so important. But, um, yeah, you, you just got to treat everybody with respect and and you know yeah. treat people the way you like to be treated yeah the golden rule is something that used to be just shoved down our throats as kids and you and i are, are about the same age and you know we grew up yeah. hearing the golden rule constantly and i haven't heard anybody yeah. say that in a long time and uh, you know and it's a shame but you're absolutely right <laughs> so you yeah. you got all your ratings you did your flight instructor time and i remember um going to, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to Tailwind as well. And you were on your way out. You, you were one of the first classes to get hired at uh, Sandpiper Regional, uh, after 9-11 and you got on and it, unfortunately you and Mark, I remember, uh, Mark who, uh, right. was also, uh, your same, uh, kind of seniority at the flight center and, and then right. at Sandpiper. And, uh, you guys left and I stayed on and, you know, had my handful of students and, and my responsibilities there. It's actually a great experience tailwind for me. And maybe one day in a future podcast, I'll talk about, you know, my role there and coordinating with uh, RPOI and the FAA and whatnot to help improve the school. But um, it was a great learning experience for me there. Um, had a wonderful time, had some amazing students, a few of which I still communicate with today. Yeah, um, and me just, too. You know, talk about small world, yeah. and and you went on, and then I remember I started to see the people that I had helped hire to be flight instructors at the flight school were getting jobs at regional carriers ahead of me, like because they were just applying, you know. And I thought, oh, you know, at the time I had a uh, I was a, a new dad for the first time, and I had I was like, am I really gonna just sit here and flight instruct and be a, be this assistant chief over here and and you know take care of all these uh, the office responsibilities uh, on top of the flying responsibilities? And for what? I mean, I need to. It's a seniority based industry. Yes. Let me yes. get my feet wet. So I called one person. I called you. And I said, man, what's going on, man? How, how do you like, how do you like Sandpiper? I don't know. I heard it's like a 14 year upgrade over there. <laughs> and, you know, again, for a second time, you gave it to me straight. You told me exactly the pros and the cons. And, you know, I think 
where were you? I think you were based in, in 2006. Were you based in Chicago or was it New I was York? Dallas. You were Dallas. Dallas. That's right. Dallas. Yeah. So the commute wasn't too bad for you, but you gave me some pointers on commuting and, and picking yeah. bases. And so I applied. And, and as I mentioned, uh, I think in an earlier podcast, uh, towards the beginning of the, the show's creation, um, applied on a Friday, uh, interviewed on a Monday and was hired on Tuesday. Yeah. So, you know, it all happened pretty yeah. quick. So there we were, coworkers. Exactly happened for me. Yeah. I, I remember, um, and, and this is quite remarkable because um, talking with other um, fellow pilots, fellow employees that um, got hired on with the airline, you know, their their hiring process wasn't as, uh, wasn't typical to, or at least wasn't as uh, similar to mine and yours probably. You know, when I applied, I remember prior to putting in my application that I needed to get, I don't know, it was like one and a half or two hours of multi-time just to bring my totals up to the requirement for being a uh, requirement for the airline for, for Sandpire for regionals. And um, I remember just saying, you know what, I'm just going to go out, rent this airplane. I don't care how much money it's going to cost me just to get that, you know, hour and a half. I'm just going to do it by myself because this is going to get me at least eligible for a, a position at the airline. So yeah. I went out Sunday night and I remember landing at like nine o'clock at night. And I finally officially had those totals and I uh, had my application already online, filled out, ready to go. So in the flight school, I logged in and I hit enter and send. And so that resume went out into cyberspace <laughs> Sunday night. Yeah. Well, when I checked back in, on uh, Monday morning, I had a lesson. I remember it was like seven o'clock in the morning. So I got there about a half hour early to open up, make the coffee for the teas and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I uh, checked my email and I had received a, uh, a, a reply email from, from a Sandpiper Regional saying, hey, we got your, uh, your resume and uh, we'd like you to give us a call as soon as you can to set up an interview. This was Monday morning. So I was like, wow. That's crazy. And so I was really excited. And just about the same time that I was reading this email, uh, one of the T's walked into the building. And uh, for those of you know that don't know, uh, we nicknamed the, uh, the owners of the uh, Tailwind the T's because they're both, they're both their names. We gave with Tom. So uh, we just call them T1 and T2. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the, I can't remember who walked in, but one of the T's walked in and, uh, you know, the, they sensed my excitement uh, from the email that I just received. And, and they like, well, hey, why don't you just give them a call right away and, and see what, see when they want you to come in. I was like, okay, I'll give them a call. So right then and there, I called up Sandpiper Regional and they said, hey, when can you, be, when can you come out for an interview? I was like, well, when can you guys get me there? They're like, well, how about tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Okay, we'll we'll send you a, a electronic ticket. Here's your confirmation number. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm like, okay, sounds good. And they said, plan on being here for a couple of days for the interview. Outstanding. Flew out there Tuesday. Did the uh, interview Wednesday. They had the medical on Thursday. Yeah. And for all yeah. you folks here, uh, Tony and I talk about seniority means everything. Well. Even during the interview um, on Thursday, uh, I was the oldest person in that room oh, at the time. Yeah. And the recruiter came in and they said, hey, Rob, uh, you're going to learn about seniority very quick. And today's your first lesson. 
you're the oldest person in this room and there is one seat available in the training class on Monday. And since you're the senior person in this room, you have the option whether you want to take it or not. Yeah. And I thought about and I was like, wow, that's really fast. If, uh, if I can get that, you know, class date uh, Monday, sure, I'll take it. Wow. <laughs> and I really didn't have to think about it, right? Yeah. So they were like, okay, well, we'll confirm with you on Friday, which is uh, the following day. And um, so finished up the uh, Thursday interview, flew home Thursday night. Friday morning again, showed up at the flight school, got a phone call, and they're like, hey, that, cl that class is yours, I mean, that seat is yours um, officially, so we'll see you on Monday. They're like, yep. I was like, yes, sounds great. <laughs> wow. So you so had to go home and pack from, and uh, get ready to go pretty quick. I had to not only pack, I had to clean out my, you know, my desk at, at, at Tailwind and, yeah. you know, try to make sure I did a good Passover for guys like you and everybody else that was uh, you know, going to be uh, taking over my students. And uh, wow. Yeah. It happened really quick. Yeah. Uh, I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> and the lesson there is, you know, if you're given an opportunity, by all means, the answer is always absolutely yes. Because, exactly. you know, you, you get comfortable and you're like, well, you know, it's, too much. I, I need a couple of weeks here, and you start putting up these barriers yeah. to your journey, yeah. and you don't want to do that. You know, adjust and and do your best because yeah. you could always tweak it and adjust it. But you know, those opportunities, you have to recognize them, and it sounds like you recognized yeah, it, it immediately. Yeah, and you know, and and it also another thing probably to add to that is always be prepared. You know, for for the un, you know, something you can't prepare for. So always, you know, have your documents in order, always have your, um, you know, your, your, your radar on, so to speak on, on things that are out there mm -hmm. and be prepared to know, kind of know what you need to do if that opportunity were to present itself to you, because yeah. you never know when it does and when, it, and when it does, you want to at least, uh, have, you know, something, uh, going in the, that direction or, um, you know, something prepared in that direction so that you're not, you know, trying to start up fresh and, and get into it. And you may end up, you know, taking too much time or, you know, right. may not be interested in it at all. You know what I mean? But at least, you know, that, uh, you're, 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 you're at least going in the right direction when it comes. Right. And so you, you spent quite some time over there at, uh, what we call Sandpiper Regional. Um, and you started out early. Yeah, 36 days and eight hours. How many years? <laughs> 12 years, 36 days and eight hours. <laughs> wow. So you and I, you were there about a year and a half before me. And I think when I left there, it was about 12 years and, and a few months. Yeah. So right around the same time frame. That's, that's yeah. actually quite interesting. Um, so yeah. you, you started out on the Embraer 145, had a great experience there. Did you upgrade on that equipment? I did. I upgraded on the Embraer 145, and um, it was a, 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 an upgrade surprise uh, because, uh, like we talked about earlier, upgrade times at, at um, Sandpiper Regionals when I got hired was about 12 years yeah. into a turboprop. Well, uh, it, I remember it about five, five and a half years into uh, my time 
and uh, there had been a vacancy bid posted. And honestly, at that time, I didn't really pay attention to it because I knew that, hey, you know, if if anything, I don't I want to be based in Dallas. So I wasn't interested in anything else other than upgrading the captain. Mm-hmm. And I knew that a captain upgrade was, you know, at least at that time, seven years away because it was, you know, a 12 year upgrade. Yeah. So um, but however, backtrack to initial training, one of the uh, um, crew members that happened to be in training at that time said, hey, why don't you just go ahead now and put in your bid for uh, for captain? That way, if it happens to come up, you at least have it in the computer and, you know, you never know. Right. And uh, so initial training, you know, five years ago, I put that in and I uh, put in all the bases that were available, you know, Chicago and New York, so on and so forth. So anyways, fast forward to uh, the time frame that I'm talking about now, about five and a half years later, uh, I started getting uh, text messages and emails from co-workers saying, hey, congrats, Captain. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. You know, I'm not a captain. I'm a first officer, and I'm happy to be a first officer. Uh, but I I don't know where they're getting this captain nonsense from. You know, like, I guess uh, they must think that, I don't know, I think, I, I don't know what they were thinking at the time. Yeah. And uh, and finally, you know, somebody broke the news to me, and they said, hey, you're, you're going to be a captain in New York on the Embraer. Nice. And I was like, are you kidding me? How did this happen? You know, what's going on? Why me? How come? What happened to this, you know, seven years worth of guys in front of me? Yeah. <laughs> that. Uh, uh, and yeah, I had gotten the award. So my upgrade was about six years at, at um, St. Piper Airways. So yeah. it was shocking. Yeah. Um, so I started I upgraded in six years and was a captain in New York my first uh first upgrade yeah and then the the exciting news there was at the time the most of the regional airlines in the country were dealing with the i think the kind of like the pre wave of shortages of pilots now at the time if you spoke with uh, union reps or company management, they said, no, there is no looming pilot shortage. It's, it's a farce. And, but we were seeing otherwise because we saw how many people were now upgrading and moving on and moving on to uh, major airlines that were growing and becoming uh, new, uh, new players on the marketplace like uh, spirit and frontier and even JetBlue. So, and Virgin America at the time. So these companies um, they started out hiring only the top, I'd say the top brass of the regional carriers, so check airmen, super senior right. captains. And what was happening mm-hmm. is they'd go there, they'd get their, you know, type rating and whatever, you know, larger equipment, whether it be Airbus or a uh, seven, three yep. or whatever the, this major airline was flying. And then, uh, as the progression of recalls was happening at mainline carriers at the time, these guys were getting recalled mm. because they had some kind of flow number or recall number. And so these uh, smaller economy airlines were training people. And after three or four years, they would leave. So yeah. their HR departments got smart and said, you know what? Let's hire senior FOs that don't have a type rating yet because this is a pre FAR 117. And they said this way, they're kind of stuck here until they upgrade. And now our training expenses are going to go further. 
Um, and yeah. so what was happening is now we start seeing senior FOs and junior captains at regional airlines getting hired on at major airlines, not legacy airlines. And so we saw this progression going from, like you mentioned, 14-year upgrades, 12-year upgrades to now five and six-year upgrades, which is what I upgraded in five and a half years. So yeah, we started seeing this and we were like, oh, pilot shortage, pilot shortage. And at the same time, the economy was having issues. Uh, flight schools were closing. The ones that survived were surviving on uh, uh, foreign contracts. So, right. you know, we saw a, a spike in this very cyclical, yeah. you know, industry that we're in. Um, and the great thing about that was the regionals realized, well, we have less pilots available to us. We need to have bigger airplanes in order to transport larger numbers of passengers with fewer pilots, which went against right. most scope clauses. Now, for those of my listeners yeah. that don't understand what a scope clause is, most legacy or major airlines that partner with regional carriers, regional carriers get the passengers from the smaller locations, more rural airports into the main hub so that they can make connections and then fly off to their destination and then possibly even uh, a hub and spoke kind of uh, scheduling, yeah. which and is what we don't realize that the airlines are contracted by the major uh, by the legacy carriers too. So they're, um, I guess we call them also fee for departure right. airlines. But right. Yeah. So you think it says, for example, United Express on the aircraft, that's not a United airline that's running it. It's a contracted out uh, regional or fee for departure. So the United is paying them per departure. And okay. what was happening was, you know, all this progression was happening and but the scope clauses, for example, if United has, I'm not sure what they have over there, but if they have a scope clause that says, you know, regional airlines can fly, but they can only fly 50 passengers at a time and they can't do any hub to hub. And, you know, there's so many little things in a scope clause. But what happens in bankruptcy is all the contracts get blown away. They get negated um, yeah. by the bankruptcy court. And that opens up the floodgates to contract out to get around scope. Yeah. And this is what was happening during the time. And the time. we started ordering Embraer 175s, which has that, how many does that hold? 70, what was the configuration? Uh, 76. That, 76 people with, yeah. with first class. You could now bring on carry-on luggage. You didn't have to valet check them, which was a big bonus for Great. our Great. passengers. Great. Yeah. So yeah, what year did you go on to the 175? Uh, let's see. That was, I have to think back. I think it was 2014 when I went to the 175. I can't remember. I was like the second class. So I wasn't the initial cadre, but I was one of like maybe the second, maybe the third class of 175 folks. I mean, we literally only had like four airplanes on the line when, when I got, uh, when I transitioned over to the 175 group. Yeah. So, but that was, su that's such a, I still say it today, even flying around in my 737, that air, that Embraer 175 is a, such a nice airplane yeah. um, for, a, for a, not only for a, the pilots, for the passengers too, you know, the overhead bins, it's quiet, it had Wi-Fi, yeah. <laughs> it was a great airplane. Yeah, well, most, one of the most modern regional models to date, 
right now until until the CRJ. What was it? The CRJ one thousand. Which I, was that scrapped? Yeah, I don't know. Canadair and and um, it's a B Airbus one, it? ready to finish on that C two twenty one, the C two twenty airplane that mm-hmm. is now you see flying around with Delta. So uh, those were kind of the planes that were in that time frame running for you know contracts and uh, purchases and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. So that's how that's how the, the Embraer one seventy five came to play, and you were very fortunate mm-hmm. to get on there very early on. I remember you telling me about how the airplane, how nice it was, and how much more avionics it yeah. has than in, in the Embraer one forty five. To give it its due justice, it's a wonderful glass cockpit aircraft. You know whether that oh um, it was a great airplane yeah so it just yeah. a big improvement on I love the, the Embraer one yeah yeah that was a great plane to uh to learn from um and uh it was uh very reliable you know it and it it would you could zoom right up to altitude fully loaded um and uh you know it 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 flew very well i mean you can land that thing in that 30 knot crosswind with no problem yeah (laughs) and uh it it is a little rough in turbulence because of the stiff wing but um uh, it was fun. It was fun to fly, but making the transition from the 145 to the 175 was uh, a very easy transition because uh, the Amber folks uh, did a good job of making sure that the airplane, um, there was a, there were a lot of similarities between the two models. And mm-hmm. it seems like what they, what they really did was they just take some of the things that needed improvement on the 145 series or I guess they call it the 135 series. <laughs> sure. But they took some of the things that needed improvement on, and um, they fixed them in the 175, and then added a few more um, upgrades to the uh, to the cockpit there. Yeah. And, um, and so when you when you sit in the sit in the in the pilot seats, uh, it felt like a 145, you know, and all the buttons were in familiar places. All the every, all everything you needed was in familiar places. And so it was a very easy transition. The systems were very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was easy to learn from. Um, obviously, there was a lot of differences also. Um, and those were easy to learn uh, once you go through the class and everything. But wow, it was a great airplane. Yeah. It really was. And and you were on that aircraft for, was it three or four years? Uh, no, it was only about two years. Oh, two years before uh, you got the call? I, yeah, yeah two, two and a half years. Because I remember... Uh, yeah, I remember I had just finished a uh, another recurrent training cycle, and then I got the call to go to Legacy Airlines. There you go. Yeah, so <laughs> very cool. So, and you had yep. you and I actually did something. Uh, we we shared a, a similar job over at Sandpiper, which was uh, they had asked you to be a check airman on the 175. I think right around the same time right. they asked me to do it on the 145 because I, I stayed on the 145 because I was afraid that if I went to the 175, I might get seat locked because I it wasn't even locked. on the radar because um, you went on like in the second tier of people to, to get hired on in that aircraft. I think they only had four or five airplanes, like you mentioned. And I, living in Southern California and commuting, I liked the flexibility of being on an aircraft that was at practically every base. And the sure. schedule was, you know, the options were, were the most options yeah. possible. So I stayed on that aircraft for that reason, for quality of life reasons. And 
by the time I thought, hey, you know what, maybe I should go check out the 175, get another type rating under my belt. It's always good to have, you know, if, if you ever have an opportunity, in my personal opinion, to get a type rating on an aircraft uh, from your employer and they're paying for it, by all means. I mean, you know, spend right. a couple of years on an airplane, go get another type rating because it, it's another tick on your resume that you never know might be something that right. makes a difference. So I stayed a little longer. So by the time I uh, even considered going to the 175, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to stay put because if you were seat locked, they wouldn't let you flow until you're until I think one year at the time at Sandpiper. Yeah. So I stayed on and, but we both were check airmen, line check airmen at the same time. Right. And, uh, that probably that experience was, and still is absolutely my favorite part of my aviation career. Um, just being able Mine to, too. Totally yeah. Agree. yeah. So it, do you have an experience or some advice, um, that you'd like to share that you saw as a common issue with new hires or with upgrading captains at a regional level that you'd like to share? Sure. Yeah. The, um, uh, you know, at the time I remember, uh, when I was a, actually a new check airman myself and, um, we were actually getting a lot of brand new, um, pilot. Oh, I would say, shouldn't say brand new, but our new hires, were flight school new hires. You know, they were um, a lot of CFI guys coming straight from a flight school yeah. uh, to the airline, into the 175. And um, that normally I don't think is a, too big of an issue anymore today because of the, the, the quality of training people are getting out of these flight schools. But at the time, I think uh, it was uh, still a developing thing. And um, so the, the students would, you know, on paper would be, you know, really well look really good on paper mm -hmm. um and they probably did really well in training which is why they made it to the flight line and to the uh to the uh to us as a check line check airman ioe instructor um but then you you know you, you give them the airplane and uh there were some issues you always had to work out and one of them for me was just um getting them used to the workload and the pace that you would you were getting that you would have to um, you know be working at uh, every day at at Sandpiper Regional because as you know the, uh, the the tempo of the operation there is really quick you know on the 145 I remember doing four legs sometimes even five legs a day mm -hmm. uh, 25 turns and um, you know that's a lot for a, for a new hire so. Being able to uh, to take a, you know, to get when you get that new hire who's used to that, you know, flight training where they, you know, come in, they're done, they talk about what they did and what they're going to do later. And you really had no time to do that in the airline, yeah. and and you had to land. Okay, you you need to forget about what just happened. We'll talk about it later at the overnight, but we need to get the airplane turned around and and get it going and just kind of getting them in that mindset uh was not so challenging but you really had to like almost crack the whip a little bit because yeah you know be for departure airline and you had to be on time and you had to get things uh you know you had certain things you had to do but you know any one particular case um it's hard to remember anything uh that stood out 
more than anything other than um, I did have one situation where um, we had this one student. And that, of course, I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> so don't worry but, out there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. And honestly, I don't think I remember the whole name, but uh, <laughs> but basically this student was um, this uh, this pilot had really finished a simulator training. So they, like you said, type certified and, and they were ready to go on the flight line. So we just had to do the IOE portion, which introduces the, uh, that particular pilot to the operation and flying the real airplane. Well, this particular uh, person had already uh, been out on the flight line for, I think, two weeks already. Oh. So usually, I think, remember, it was like 25 hours. I think I remember was the minimum right. um, flight, time, flight experience required to be signed off for IOE. And um, this person had already been close to 40. And um, which is, you know, it, it, it can happen. But um, when I received the, the documentation handed down to me, passed over from the previous Czech Airman, and you read the notes that, you know, that things that they were, that particular student was having problems with flying to real airplane, it was a long list of stuff. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, well, geez, let's see if we can, you know, t- take care of some of this on our trip. Sure. And uh, and so this particular situation, we were actually going into Monterey, Mexico. And uh, if you're not familiar with Monterey, Mexico, the uh, the airport's arrival procedure starts off with a DME arc, and it and it transitions to the ILS uh, to the uh, to the one runway that they have available to us in Monterey. And uh, you know on a with the automation on the on the 175, it's a no-brainer. You know, you just program the machine to do what you want it to do, to fly the procedure, and you basically just like we do every day, just sit back, relax, and just manage the airplane and the systems and configure the aircraft as you uh, sl- you know descend and slow down and configure for the approach into the airport. And the airplane is auto-tuning on all the on the radios and the ILS and, you know, so glide slow, everything. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing to do other than just slow the airplane down with the, you know, with the speed knob and <laughs> put out, put out the gear and extend the flaps and land. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this person um, chose to hand fly it, which is fine. You know, we, we encourage that. Sure. That's how you get to learn how to fly the airplane. And uh, flew the DME arc well, and through a little bit of co- uh, coaching, was able to slow down the airplane and get it configured for the approach. Well, as we established ourselves on a final approach, descending on the glide slope and tracking the localizer was a challenge for this person. I mean, the instrumentation, in, and it was a severe clear day also, so you can see the runway. Yeah. I mean, you can see almost California from where we're at <laughs> in the final approach course. But, uh, you know, we've all been there where you back up the uh, the approach with uh, instrument landing system um, guidance. And uh, so we had the instrumentation presenting us with the information on the flight director, what we needed to do as far as pointing the airplane uh, in where we needed to go to stay to land the airplane on the runway vertically and laterally. And the speed was already set, and we have auto throttles, so that's taken care of electronically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this person uh, was having a really hard time tracking 
the localizer and following the glide slope down to the runway to the point where we were almost full scale deflection on the glide slope being too high and almost full scale deflection on on the localizer in VFR conditions. Wow. And I'm I'm thinking I'm like, hey, uh, you know, the inch, you know, you look at your instruments. They're telling you you need to descend, and you know the you told me you turned off the autopilot back there, and it makes all kinds of noises when the autopilot goes off. So I know you knew that the autopilot was off because you turned it off. Why aren't you flying the airplane down to the runway? I mean, you got to point the nose at the ground at some point, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you know this all this is happening in close to the to the airport. And it finally got to the point where I knew that we weren't going to make the landing. And, and you'll, you'll go through this as an instructor at some point. Sometimes you have to let the student make a mistake. And not obviously the mistake where you're going to kill people and break things, but to the point where they have to learn from their mistakes. And unfortunately, uh, this particular uh, event had to happen on the flight line with passengers in the back. Uh. And uh, the mistake was basically that they were, you know, not stable for the approach or were not in a position to make a normal descent to landing and land within the landing zone. So I, uh, I, I gave a command, hey, we're no longer able to make the landing from here. We need to execute a go around. So whenever you're ready, you know, let's go ahead and go around. Either I could call it, you can call it and we'll follow procedure and, and execute a go around. Mm -hmm. Well, the plane where you know we're already messed up at this point as far as you know getting down to the runway and you could i looked over at this person and and you can tell they were visibly upset with themselves at that point flying the airplane because they weren't doing what they wanted to do they didn't want get the airplane where they wanted to at the time so just looking at their demeanor they were you could tell they were visibly upset with themselves so they were like okay yes let i agree let's go around so they're like okay go around and we start executing the go-around procedure, which is a normal procedure. We practice that all the time in simulators. And as a student and a flight instructor, you do that hundreds of thousands of times in, in your airplane. Mm -hmm. Well, this new airplane, which is new to her, or oops, I messed that up, mm -hmm. new, new to this person. The individual, sure, <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, uh, so this was the first actual go-around in the real airplane. Well, we have two buttons in the uh actually let me make sure i'm speaking right because i have so many type ratings i, I need to remember necessarily <laughs> uh the yeah there's two buttons on the thrust levers mm -hmm. one is a go around button toga we call it takeoff go around mm -hmm. and then the other button on the thrust levers which is in a completely different location is the auto throttle right button to turn off the auto throttle in the, in, in case you need to want to manually manage the, uh, the the thrust lever well this person on the go around instead of selecting the toga buttons or the go around buttons yeah accidentally or inadvertently selected the auto throttle buttons. oh my god disconnected the auto throttles on a go around so here's what's happening all at the same time we got a frustrated pilot on the right side not happy with the situation that they're in yeah um electing to do the go around so they're uh, selecting the go you know think they're selecting the go around function on the throttle system and at the same time knowing that we need to now transition from an approach attitude of the airplane which is you know normally a descent rate to a, a somewhat of a nose high climb rate 
was raising the nose up with the auto throttle disconnected with the power at, at, a, at a low power setting because they were already high yeah. and they were trying, you know, the auto throttle system is trying to throttle back so that we can nose down here. So the, the thrusts were almost at idle. So the nose starts to come up. I see the pitch limit indicator start to make its way from the top of the uh, of my PFD, and we all know what the pitch limit indicator tells us in, 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 in professional pilot world. That's the limit of your pitch to where the airplane will, it, once you hit that that indicator, will start to will stall. It'll set off the stick shaker. Mm -hmm. And on the Ember 145, you'll actually get a stick pusher. Mm -hmm. now, the Ember 175 just had a stick shaker. <laughs> we don't have this. the pushers were the actual pilots. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I didn't know that. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a pusher. It's, and it's all fly-by wire, too. So it, I think there was some kind of electronic uh, um, backup inside of there, so which is... I'm not 100% on that anymore because I haven't flown it on a while. But uh, try not to lose you on the story here. So the plane was really slow and in a low energy state, and we're low to the ground. And I've got 78 passengers in the back, oh and this God. person is not, you know, not filling the in. And as a and as a uh, as a as an IOE instructor, as a line check airman, these are the situations that you always need to be prepared for yeah and you need to be ready to assume control and that the challenging thing about that is like i remember you talking about in earlier uh, situations where as a czech airman uh you actually get trained as a basically to fly the airplane by yourself for this particular situation mm -hmm. because at some point that person may not be a benefit to you and you're going to have to do it all by yourself because they're training there's even though they're certified they're still in training so this was one of those situations. Yeah. So I immediately assumed control of the airplane and I firewalled those thrust levers and thank God we have good FedEx on that engine and they they spooled up just like they're supposed to, you know, symmetrically and went right to go around thrust and we got the airplane climbing up and regained our speed and went through the, the uh, go around procedure and in our um, uh, clean up procedure with the gear and the flaps as we were supposed to and uh -huh. executed the go around and followed the instrument procedure out to the hold and like just like you would do in any textbook and uh, wow that was a long story but basically that one right there was a, a wowzer yeah. <laughs> you know that was like holy mackerel yeah this is uh, this this is can be challenging and coincidentally, and this may be a topic for something else, we had, an, uh, during the same sequence, we actually had declare an emergency four days later at the end of our sequence going into Chicago. Um, and I had this person beside me, and that was uh, uh, so quite an experience on that one, too. Legitimate but emergency I happened where it was a malfunction of some kind, or how did that go, briefly? Right. Well, so we can go over it real quick. It basically, um, the, uh, the airplane is a completely fly-by-wire airplane. So for those of you not under, who don't know what that means, is the, um, the airplane is controlled by computers. The flight controls are controlled by computers. Um, the, uh, the engines are controlled by computers. The landing gear system is controlled by computers the steering is controlled and the braking so everything is controlled by a computer so basically um the uh the what this particular situation we had was when we were landing in chicago we extended our landing gear and immediately we got an icast message which is a system that alerts the pilots to um you know 
problems with the airplane or a certain configuration with the airplane. So we got a message on our ICAST telling us that there was a problem with the brake computer. Hmm. And the problem, as it was displayed to me, read that our left brake and our right brakes were not operative. Hmm. And so I was like, wow, you know, this is kind of serious. You know, if we don't have brakes, it's going to be really, really tough to stop this and airplane. Just for clarity, uh, that have- means the outboard brakes, not the inboard brakes, correct? Or not the entire left side and entire right side? Well, see, that was the confusion there. It didn't uh, delineate uh, whether it was an outboard or an inboard system. It just said the left brake. Oh, wow. Right brake, right? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, so here's, again, we had to do a go around. Uh-huh. <laughs> this individual was flying the airplane, and guess what? The go around was flawless. It go. was textbook. Uh, obviously, the training we had performed earlier in the week. <laughs> finally um, registered with this person and that go around was as picture perfect as you can get it. So check that box off of that person. It was uh-huh. great. Went around with Chicago. They sent this out to a holding pattern over Lake Michigan and we proceeded to go through our um, emergency procedure, QRC procedure mm-hmm. um, to troubleshoot this uh, particular situation. So as I was going through the procedure, um, reading it through step by step as we do in training and in real life um i'm realizing that the procedure is exactly the same procedure as if you had no brakes so there was actually a you know left brake and up right brake and up procedure and then there was a brake fail procedure which is a totally different procedure mm. and i was they were on the same page and so i was able to quickly compare each step back and forth and realize that this procedure is the exact same procedure as the brake fail procedure. Mm. It, so they're assuming that you're not going to have any brakes. And as you read on and towards the end, it says, hey, anticipate using maximum thrust, use maximum flaps, use the longest runway into the wind, all the stuff you should do as a, uh, you know, to, keep the, to give yourself the best chance to stop. And, of course, last but not least, anticipate using the emergency or parking brake system to slow the airplane down because that should be available to you uh, for this particular event Mm -hmm. so as i was reading through the procedure i hear my uh my student over here the breathing starts to increase (sighs) oh no (laughs) look over there (laughs) and i'm like are you okay they're like we're not going to have any brakes, are we? I'm like, well, we're not quite sure. And we do have brakes. We have this parking brake, and I've used it before, and it works just fine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're not going to have the normal braking that we have with our brake pedals because it's saying that the uh, it may not be available for us. So we'll just use the parking brake. And that that whole scenario for that person really – and, you know, and that goes probably another – topic for discussion but that's the human factor you know in a person you never know how somebody's going to react right and um i yeah it, you know and, and they also talk about you know the sully landing in the hudson thing and everything you know the human factor sets in immediately and you don't know how you're going to react but you know everybody reacts differently mm-hmm. and for this person you know the real when the realization set in for them that you know we may not have brakes normal braking and of course she's 
uh, I said it again, this person's brand new to the airplane. So they're probably unsure, you know, how this plane will handle on, you know, when we went touch down uh, without any brakes. And I was confident that would be okay to stop because I knew we had the parking brake. Sure. And, um, um, you know, that, that probably would elevate anybody's uh, heart rate at that time. And, but, you know, you, at some point you need to come back down from your initial excitement and, and, you know, you still got to fly the airplane and, and get it on the ground, which we had all the gas in the world to, to put around in the holding pattern there. We think we had like three or four hours worth of holding gas and everything because we had an alternate. Mm. And uh, so I said, Hey, when you're, when you calm down, when you're ready, we'll go ahead and, and, and head back to the airport. We had, we we're really in no rush to, uh, to get it down. So when we can all, you know, lower our you know you know cut, settle our nerves a little bit let's just do this let's just do this like a professional aviator and we talked and we try to use i try to use my calm voice and be honest with you when that person got a little excited i felt sorry or not sorry but i kind of felt you know passionate for, for them the yeah. feeling that that person i kind of like wow you know that that's that's you know i i i i hope I never get like that in a situation <laughs> that I'm presented with that I'm not ready for, yeah. but you know, you kind of have to be like, all right, we're okay. You know, I, I, I feel for you. And I, I got a little, uh, Hey, we're going to be all right. You know, I'm, I'm, I gotta admit, you know, it caught me by surprise too, but we're going to be able to take it down to the airport and we're going to be able to, we're going to be just fine, but we've just got to do what the procedure says. And if, as long as we do what the procedure says, and and we'll be just fine. And you know, obviously, we also talked about scenarios that are outside of the procedure that we may anticipate. Hey, if we do, if, you know, leave the runway, how are we going to handle that? What's the procedure for evacuation? Let's talk with the flight attendants and prepare them and the passengers and you know mm -hmm. all that stuff that goes on to the, that kind of emergency. So we wanted to make sure that we were ready for you know this this approach and landing into Chicago. Mm -hmm. And um, to finish up the story, um, I assume the controls. I assume the aircraft control the aircraft at that time for the approach and landing because this is one of those scenarios like you talked about earlier, where you know, hey, this is the captain's authority. If anything's going to happen, it's going to happen when I'm controlling the airplane and everything. And um, so we made a, declared the emergency, requested the longest runway back in the Chicago, and we uh, we. Made our approach, touched down in Chicago, and I immediately tested the brakes. Of course, I went into maximum reverse immediately, like you're supposed to. But I tested the brakes with the, the normal braking system with the pedals, which are most people, if you're not familiar with airplanes, the brakes are on the pedals, the toe pedals, and the top of the pedals. So I applied the brakes, and we the plane started decelerating, which was a great relief to obviously me and <laughs> my co-pilot. But I knew that we had enough brake energy to bring the airplane to a complete stop on the runway and have plenty of runway left left for us. So everything went perfectly as far as that, you know, as perfectly as could be with that particular situation that we were uh, dealt with. Mm -hmm. So we elected the taxi clear the runway. And uh, of course, uh, I didn't mention it, but we declared the emergency and the fire trucks were ready. Aircraft rescue firefighting uh, team from Chicago, which... Like you said, they respond, you know, probably within 30 seconds in a minute, they're ready to go. Yeah. Um, so they're out there waiting for us and they checked in with us on the radio 
And they said, hey, you know, what do you guys want us to do? Are you guys okay? And I said, well, I, we, I, everything's normal here other, other than um, can you do a thermal check of our brakes and see if there's anything wrong with it? And, we, and on, on the Embraer, uh, there's, there's uh, brake uh, temperatures for all your brakes. Sure. And when I looked down at my brake temperatures, the two outboard brake brakes, so the left outboard and the right outboard main mm-hmm. temperatures, in middle to the top of the amber as oh. far as temperature, so were hot. And the two inner ones were cold as ice. Uh. Obviously, the, the brake computer, which controls the left and right brake, the inner brake, were, uh, had failed. Yeah. So, uh, so there we go. That was a long, probably five-minute dissertation of my experience with an IOE student from a question you asked about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> no, that, actually, I was thinking was, how wonderful the transition from the beginning of the story and where you're talking about the struggles and some of the, some of the things that you've seen as a Czech airman in a training environment with a, a new hire that maybe came from a pilot farm that never flew a jet before, is not used to the fast pace, and you get in there and it's like that, that fire hose mentality of knowledge that you're supposed to be able to just, just not even think about it. You're supposed to be able to just do it, at least the memory item kind of things and the procedures and the callouts. And how overwhelming it can be, especially as a new hire on IOE in this environment, and how that right. negative experience led to something in the same trip. And I feel bad for for students when when you have these kind of emergencies and or these scenarios right. where the environment is beyond your control, and you know you got to keep reiterating by example how calm you need to be how you got to keep aviate navigate communicate you got to aviate always first someone has to be aviating and to have you i'm glad that you dove into that second story because as i'm listening to it i'm thinking wow talk about redemption from the previous story how they executed a beautiful go around you know to this day and i will continue to do it until the day i retire and, and maybe beyond um there's not a mistake that I used to tell people, there's not a mistake you can do that I haven't done at least once myself. And that's exactly. how you learn. Oh, you know, man, that, that's how yep. you learn. You, you make the mistake and you tell yourself, well, and if you're really passionate about what you're doing, you say, I'm never going to do that again. And what, I, what yeah. do I need to do to prepare myself so that in the event this happens to me again, am I going to be ready within the mindset of what I need to do. And it sounds like this individual that you had under your wing there for your, for their third session of IOE their third sequence of IOE, you know, they had all these issues in training, which is normal. It happens, but here you are now you're, and she totally redeemed the individual redeemed themselves with this go around and how frustrating and how scary it can be for someone who's new to the aircraft, to the industry, to the, to the airplane. And now you're like, what do you mean? We don't have any, breaks are you kidding me i mean this is like air disasters 101 right and the fact that you remain calm the fact that you not only did that but you were able to kind of show that compassionate side of who you are as a person and say look you know this is hold for longer that is just a testament to your character and i commit i just absolutely wow. applaud you for that that was just amazing okay. story thank you for yeah. sharing that it, oh it was my pleasure i it was an experience for me too and 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 um 
as the aviators, um, up and coming aviators will learn a lot of a lot of things you learn are from your experiences. And even as a as a flight instructor or as a Czech airman or any capacity of, of teaching, um, a lot of times or most of the times I would say you learn more there than you do anywhere else because yeah. you know you're you're uh you're not only teaching it but uh you're learning from the mistakes sorry about the dog in the background we got the ups guide probably delivering a uh amazon package there you go. <laughs> no worries <laughs> no worries the uh but like you said uh you learn so much from um your experiences and it had never stopped you never stopped learning even as a flight instructor even as a czech airman yeah um and, you know, now that we're at the legacy airlines, I mean, we're still learning and it's always going to be that way. Yeah. And um, you're human. You're going to make mistakes. And hopefully you can just, like you said, learn from your mistakes and uh, and hopefully not make them again and then uh, move on from there and be a better professional aviator. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, just to, to kind of wrap up our, our time together today, um, you have... Uh, moved on from Sandpiper Regional now about four years ago. I mean, is that correct? You you got the call to, to go uh, on to Legacy. I, I moved over to Legacy Airlines uh, September of seventeen. So I'm in my second year. Um, so third year pay. Um, so yeah. it, I, September seventeen. So it's at two almost two years and a couple months now. Yeah, and so, a positive yeah. experience. Would you say? Uh, it's been a great experience, um, and. Honestly, it was made better because we were with Sandpiper Regionals. Uh, the transition was just so seamless. And I got to tell you, it's been incredible for me just knowing that, you know, when it all started back in uh, August of 2005, I interviewed once, which was a blitz interview because I told you, you know, we went through the story earlier in the podcast mm -hmm. where I applied on a Sunday and I was in class on a Monday. I interviewed once with Sandpiper Airways and did the flow through. Mm -hmm. And now I'm here at Legacy Airlines. I've never experienced more than any more than one real interview. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of our uh, coworkers, they've been to different airlines and different regionals. And, you know, they've gone through two, three, sometimes four, five corporate, yeah. you know, and it's, it's really amazing that we're, you know, here where we are and our interview happened you know, for me back in 2005, I think you were yeah. 2006 or uh -huh. 2007. So it's amazing. I mean, really is. And it, um, it is, it, 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 you know, huh. we, we lucked out and neither one of us ever got furloughed. You know, we nope. haven't had to experience that. Although there are people that have been furloughed, even at Sandpiper back in the day, there was a time where, where there were people there and yep. absolutely this journey has been amazing now, i wouldn't say easy or simple but it's just been kind of like no major hiccups you know exactly. and listening to our yeah. coworkers and friends over the years and and some of them that have just struggled and, and for whatever reason by no decision or choice of their own they find themselves in a right. difficult position to constantly be interviewing and constantly be application yeah. hunting and yeah so it's been it's been a ride yeah. And I, I, I can't speak for everybody. I can't speak for everybody, but I know for me, you know, like you said, it's it's a roller coaster industry. It's cyclical. You know, we've had ups, upturns, downturns, furloughs, and everything like that. And from my short experience, uh, it's 
I've, I, and I have a, a, a distinct capability of always looking at things through a, a you know, a, a, a good view. I'm always like, hey, no matter how bad it is here, it's worse where I was before. Right. You know what I mean? And um, I don't think it's always greener on the other side of the fence. You know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side because it's only greener where you water it. Absolutely, so I'm brother. always watering my grass and um, I want to make sure that, you know, because I'm here, I'm going to have the best experience. So I tried, to, you know, shelter, uh, you know, not listen to all the nonsense, shelter myself from all that nonsense. I wouldn't go into the crew rooms half the times because I know that I would be exposed to some of the, you know, the, the downside of the uh, industry and that's where everybody talks about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I stay out of the crew rooms unless I actually had to. And, um, but I try to make it the most positive experience for me. And then also for my, my coworkers, you know, when they show up onto the airplane, I'm like, Hey, we're going to have a good trip. You know, we're going to find a place to go out and get a, and get an IPA. And, um, we're going to forget about, you know, the, 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 the nastiness and the the craziness of this industry. And we're yeah. just going to be, cause you're on the road four days a week, sometimes five days, six days, you got to have a little bit of a social life while you're at work. And, you know, we're just going to talk like people and have fun and, and share stories. And yeah. that's what it's all about. Absolutely. You know? It absolutely is. I'm glad you mentioned it. A lot of the, the terminology and the sayings that you have are, are sayings that I've been also reiterating over the years. Uh, you know, the grass is greener where you water it. And, you know, life is short. We got to actually get along with each other, take care of each other, you know, um, and enjoy yourselves. You know, the day, the day this becomes a job, I'm going to find something else to do. Cause this really is, it is a passion. I don't, I don't, people ask me, you know, where do you work? I'm like, well, I really don't work. Like what? I I really, (laughs) I have a, I have a hobby. (laughs) I have a passion. I have a career. I really don't work. I mean, I work yeah. at home, I, <laughs> I work in the yard. I live on the weekends. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's great if you have a significant other that can help support your hobby. That, that does help. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's true. My wife has uh, really been supportive. She was the, you know, the breadwinner for a long time because of Sandpiper regionals. And um, I know things have been, have gotten a little bit better, you know, and not only Sandpiper, but other regional airlines, but you know, when you and I got hired there, I think I actually took a pay cut from the flight instructing yeah. job to go work at Sandpiper. Yeah. Um, so it was tough, you know, with the, like you said, with the, the new family started and, you know, and hey, you live out in California. So, man, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know how I did way it. Way more pricier there than it is here in Texas. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's tough. But, um, you know, I tried. I tried to live within my means and doing that helped me, uh, you know, de-stress my life of the financial aspect of the industry, which was, you know, always, it's always an issue. That's mm-hmm. always is. But again, you got to just look at it on, from a positive perspective. Hey, I'm flying airplanes. I'm having fun. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm going for a run on Maui or, you know, Miami and, uh, you know, going out to the, seeing things that, you know, the normal nine to five person doesn't get to see right or they only get to see when they go on a vacation on your legacy airline you right. know what i mean <laughs> right so get to see it and the office and, views are pretty good from my office i'm sure you can say the same thing well 
Oh, yeah. it is incredible. Even on those stormy days where you have those big Texas thunderstorms or, you know, snowstorms when you're up in the air and you're looking at it from that, you know, perspective, it is beautiful. I mean, it is, it is so amazing. You know, obviously we're not going to fly in it, but, you know, from, from a distance, you're up there, you don't get to see that when you're on the ground. And right. it's, it truly is amazing. And at the end of the, at the end of your career, if you didn't enjoy those experiences, you know, you're just not, you have to have, I mean, you have to have these experiences and make them positive so that when you retire, you're going to, you want to be able to look back and you're like, man, yeah. what a great career it was and what a great life it was, you know, great people. And, you know, it's just going to, it, I just want it to be that way, you know? So yeah, that's what I'm trying to make it. Well, so far <laughs> I think you've been very successful in that, in that <laughs> <So> regard. <yeah. laughs> well, you know, Rob, I just so want to thank you for taking the time uh, to sit down with me today. It's been an absolute thank pleasure you. to have you on the show. And uh, maybe we can do it again. We didn't really get to um, the Legacy Airline <laughs> trip so far. I know it's only been a few yeah. years, but, you know, there's a lot yeah. of questions out well, there. Again. Yeah. So, yeah. again, thanks for spending the time with this uh, very grateful aviator to come on to Squawk Ident. I appreciate your support uh, from the beginning of when I started this show till now. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much. You. Well, Rob, any uh, last uh, advice uh, to uh, our listeners uh, coming from a well-experienced individual <laughs> like yourself? Well, um, honestly, if there's any advice is it from me is that um, anything could happen if you, if you, you know, put your mind to it. Um, and if you're already in the industry, you know, like you always say, keep the dirty side down. I like to say also keep the pointy end forward, shiny side up. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just enjoy the ride because there's nothing else that I know that I would rather be doing uh, other than flying airplanes. So uh, if you, if this is something that you're thinking about doing, or if you're already doing it, you're, you're always going to encounter some, um, some resistance and some friction, some drag, like we say in the, in the, as pilots, uh, you just need to keep your, you know, keep your sights set on the goals and, and, and move forward, put one foot in front of the other and onwards and upwards. That's the only way to go. Absolutely. Well, sir, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful opportunity and I look forward to our next encounter. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That just about wraps up episode 19. I had a wonderful time, and I just wanted to say a big thank you to Rob for spending the time with me. And a wonderful interview. It was my first time doing a Skype interview through the mixing board and into the digital audio recorder. So it was a, an interesting experience to do that. Uh, there's many ways to do interviews via the internet for podcasts and that was just one of the ways that I can bring to you these wonderful content with individuals that share a passion for aviation. I encourage you to visit our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. From there, you can listen to the show if you don't already have a podcast player. Uh, listen here link. You can check out the unique episode cover art that I produce for each independent uh, show. 
and that's under the photo gallery tab. You can also get your favorite Squawk Ident gear from the Pilot Shop on the website. From the Home tab, all the way at the bottom, you can contribute to the show by becoming a producer and giving us some feedback and let us know how we're doing. If there's a topic you'd like to learn about or have me discuss, I'd love to get your feedback on that as well. Spotify listeners can also sponsor, give audio feedback, and share this episode with other episodes of Squawk Ident. If you follow on social media, then Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, you can search Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. You can direct message me as well from those platforms. So just want to take this opportunity and say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. 